And the rest of you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Last week we looked at the forest, the whole message of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached. And now we're going to move passage by passage. We're going to scale every tree to see the depth of his words. And so we're going back to the beginning. Matthew 5. And I'm going to read through all of the Beatitudes, verses 1 to 12. Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wonder how the world might reword these Beatitudes. What does or who does the world consider blessed? Blessed are the successful, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are You, when you're surrounded by good people, lots of family and friends. Blessed are those who put number one first, and that is yourself. Your own happiness, your own desires, your own wants before others. That's who the world might consider truly happy or blessed. Blessing is based on circumstances. How well life is going for you. Blessed are the fortunate. Well, God says, not blessed are the fortunate. Blessed are the favored. Blessed are the favored. See, when you read through the actual Beatitudes, those who are blessed, you'll see a stark contrast from what the world considers as those who are truly happy. Jesus says you're blessed when you're not always surrounded by good people. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Jesus says that you're blessed and sometimes you don't always feel good. Blessed are you when you mourn. God's blessed are not the self-promoting. God's blessed are the poor in spirit. God's blessed are not self-indulging. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's blessed do not value external beauty, 
God's blessed value purity in the heart. God's blessed are not power hungry. They're not success driven. They're not others expending. They're gentle. They're merciful. And they're peacemakers. Lastly and crucially, God's blessed don't live for this world. They live for the next. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Their reward is in heaven. The world might say, blessed are you when life is going well for you. Jesus said, blessed are you when you belong to another life. When your life is not here in this world, but it's in the next. See, if you go through the blessed in Jesus' list, you'll quickly realize that God's blessed are those that the world would consider rejects, despised. But the converse is true. The opposite is true. The world's blessed are those that God will eventually reject. They're not true citizens of His kingdom. These are markers, distinguishing markers, of those who are truly His kingdom citizens. His people, His sons and daughters. This is what they're marked by. So let me ask you a question. Which would you rather be? Blessed according to this world or blessed in the world to come? Favored by God, happy in God, or fortunate and successful according to this world. Jesus lays out here in this passage eight beatitudes, and there are eight characteristics that should be manifest in the life of a kingdom citizen, a true child of God. But there's also this, there's this present and this future aspect. These are present attributes in the life of a believer, but there is a future expectation of a future reward. Jesus doesn't call you to a self-deprecating life that just ends in suffering, 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 suffering. Jesus calls you to a humble life, enduring through suffering, so that in the end, you can receive a better reward, better than what this world can give you. So let's look at these Beatitudes. We're just going to look at four today, and then we're going to look at the last four next week. Point number one, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the humble. It would help us to define what it means to be blessed. Blessed could also be translated as happy, but when you think of happy, you think of the world's happy. You think of that fleeting emotion. It's almost like breath. You could see it for a minute and then the next minute it's gone. The song, uh, the king Solomon talked about that kind of happiness, and he said that is vanity. That's fleeting. The happiness that God describes here, or Jesus describes here, is, a, is, a, is an eternal soul happiness. True comfort. True joy. One that can't be found in this world, but one that when it enters the soul, grips you and makes you look forward to the kingdom. To the favor that God provides those. I think we could translate it, translate blessed more as those who are favored by God. Those who are cared for by God. Those that are thriving 
thriving. So that's what it means to be blessed. Spiritually thriving, favored by God. So let's look at the first beatitude, Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word for poor is that used of a beggar. One who has nothing and utterly depends on the help of others. This is not talking about social poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about spiritual poverty. We could read it this way. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. They recognize they have nothing. They're spiritually bankrupt. That is, if they show up to heaven's door and they swipe their card at the admission table, their card will decline because there's nothing in their account. They recognize there's nothing good that they can offer God. There's nothing that they can barter for the kingdom. All their good works are like filthy rags with selfish motivations. And then all of us recognize that we've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. So the spiritual beggar brings nothing to God except debt and sin. Spiritually depraved. The scriptures talk about this. Psalm 14, Romans chapter 3, Isaiah 64 affirm this reality. No one is good in and of themselves. Not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us in this room, we're all beggars that are utterly dependent upon the mercy and the compassion of another. The great illustration of this principle is the story Jesus told of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, verse 10, Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this, notice, to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Me, I, to myself. But notice the posture of the tax collector. Verse 13. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, what did the tax collector recognize? That he's a beggar. He had nothing good to offer God. No good works that he could boast in. He recognized that he was a sinner. Therefore, what does he ask for? Mercy. He knows he has nothing good to offer God, but totally and utterly depends on the mercy and compassion of God. So it says, God, be merciful to me. I don't deserve it. There's nothing I can offer. 
I need mercy. This is spiritual humility. And this is the first attribute, the first characteristic of a sinner. Because really, it's the starting place to your salvation and your conversion. You first have to recognize that you're a sinner in order to recognize you need a Savior. This is spiritual humility and theirs, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the door into the kingdom is low and only those who crawl on their hands and knees will make it through. You have to lower yourself before God. Recognize that you have nothing to offer from your own good works or your own self-righteousness, but you're a beggar. And you utterly depend on the mercy of God. And this is not only the way to enter into the kingdom, but it's the attitude of all those you'll find inside. Everybody enters through the low door. Therefore, everybody recognizes themselves as as a beggar. They're poor in spirit. They're spiritually humble. No one's better than anyone else. No need to compare yourself to others, Christians. We don't put ourselves on pedestals. We didn't make it in our own self-righteousness. We don't continue in our own self-righteousness. We're not better than. We're not deserving. Spurgeon writes this. He says, Those who are of no account in their own eyes... Have the royal blood. Do you have the royal blood? First recognizing that you're a spiritual beggar apart from God's mercy and grace. Do you recognize that? Or do you think you got into the kingdom by your own bootstraps and your own good works and your own effort? That's not the case. Citizens of the kingdom are humble. They're beggars who know if it weren't for God's mercy and God's grace, their life would be falling apart, unraveling. Here is the starting place, Jesus says, to being blessed, to thriving spiritually, to having true happiness. This is not where the world would start. The world would start by saying, hey, focus on you. Look at yourself. God says, you're nothing. MacArthur puts it this way, happy are the nobodies. You want a happy life, a thriving life, don't look at circumstances. They'll fail you. Don't look to people. They'll fail you. Look at God and live like you've got nothing to offer Him and that you're utterly dependent upon God's mercy. And contrary to the world's logic, this doesn't result in a a more empty life, but this actually fills your life full of grace and mercy because everything is a gift from God. Everything good in your life is a gift if you live poor in spirit. It's all God's grace. It's all God's mercy. Starting with your salvation. Being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a gift. And only those who are poor in spirit recognize it that way. The second beatitude. Blessed are the sober. Blessed are the sober. Jesus says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Let me say it another way. Happy are the sad. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? 
But there's some logic here. Follow the logic of the Beatitudes. They're not in random order. Jesus says first, blessed are the poor in spirit. First, recognize that you're nobody, you're nothing apart from the mercy of God. In fact, all you have to offer him is sin. You bring no credit, but you bring debt. And what's the emotional result of that? Sadness. A true mourning. If you recognize your true spiritual condition apart from Christ, you will mourn. And it's not a sadness over loss. It's not sadness over personal hurt or or guilt or shame. It's sadness over sin. This is godly sorrow, not the world's sorrow. And there is a difference. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, everybody's sorry. Everybody at some point in their life experiences sorrow, regret, guilt, shame, pain. God knows that. God recognizes that and knows that in your life. But let me ask you this. Have you experienced genuine sorrow over your sin? Because that is the godly sorrow that produces repentance that results in salvation. Because, see, you're not going to turn from sin unless you're sorry about it. Truly sorrowful and broken over it. And as a result of being sorrowful over your sin, you're going to turn from that which has caused you pain, you're going to repent and go to Jesus Christ, which leads to salvation. Do you remember what Jesus said are the criteria to enter His kingdom? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You must turn from your sin. And before turning from sin, you need to have that godly sorrow, that brokenness over your sin. You must mourn. Solomon says it this way, in Ecclesiastes 7 2, it says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? Because mourning sin and mourning death, which is the consequence of sin, it sobers us up. It sobers us up. It helps us to take life seriously. Because sin and death, there are no laughing matter. Everybody knows to not laugh at a funeral. Right? That's inappropriate. You don't make jokes at a funeral or memorial service. Then why is it that comedians make millions of dollars joking about sexual immorality, the sin that causes death? Why is it that streaming networks make billions of dollars producing TV shows that make light of sin or even glorify sinful behavior and and some of us watch them? And laugh along. Talk show hosts, news anchors, public figures excuse sinful behavior. Oh, it's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's the system's fault. Nobody's guilty. Nobody takes responsibility. Nobody mourns over the sin that causes death. Except the Christian and the blessed. The blessed mourn. 
The blessed recognize sin and death and its seriousness and the effects it causes in their life. They mourn over it. God's blessed mourn sin. They take it seriously. They know it's no laughing matter because it's the reason Jesus suffered and died on a cross. None of us would laugh when we see Jesus pierced for our transgressions. We would not make excuses or make light of sin when you hear Him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was crushed for our iniquities. Like the modern hymn, How He Loves... uh, uh, or how, How Deep the Father's Love for Us writes, "It is It was my sin... That put him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. We know that he died for our sins, and that's no laughing matter. So do you mourn over your sin? Not just the big ones, the little ones. Every day. The sins that you may take lightly, or the sins that maybe others would go, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. Are you genuinely sorrowful about those sins? Because Jesus died for those too. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4 says, for they shall be comforted. There's comfort that comes as a result of mourning over your sin. Spurgeon writes this, How great a blessing is sorrow, since it gives room for the Lord to administer His comfort. Our griefs are blessed for their points of contact for the divine comforter. Opportunities for God to comfort us. And surely, forgiving our sins and saving us from our sins is an opportunity for God to comfort us. See, we mourn the sin, but that results in comfort because mourning results in turning, which leads to salvation and experiencing salvation being favored by God comforts us, reminds us of His grace, His mercy, His atoning work on the cross. Jesus, or, sorry, not Jesus, but David writes in Psalm 32, he simultaneously mourns over his sin, but finds great comfort and blessing in God's forgiving of him. In Psalm 32, this is, these are the words David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, which if you don't remember, he commit adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered, he arranged the murder of her husband. I mean, I don't know if anybody in this room has that kind of sin record. That's a pretty serious sin record. But this is what David writes. He writes, blessed, favored, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, Favored, happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's the comfort. But notice the mourning. Verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. 
I wonder if you're here today under the heavy hand of God because you're harboring sin and you know it. Mourn that sin. Recognize the seriousness of it. Sober up. Take it seriously and repent from it today to find the sweet relief, the comfort that David and all those who are blessed find when God forgives you and washes you of that iniquity. The happy, the thriving, God's blessed have mourned their sin. They're sober over it. They take it seriously. They've turned from it and found great comfort in God's forgiveness and salvation. Number three, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Look at verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, I wonder how the world might reword this beatitude. Donald Trump might say, Blessed are the rich and powerful, for they shall inherit the earth. Vanity Fair magazine might say, Blessed are the beautiful, for they shall inherit the earth. The famous athlete might say, Blessed are the athletic, for they shall inherit the earth. Billionaires like Elon Musk might say, Blessed are the intelligent, for they shall inherit the earth. Most self-help books would say, Blessed are the go-getters. Blessed are the self-confident. Blessed are the success-driven. Blessed are those who put themselves first at the expense of others, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, also translated as gentleness, is generally not a part of most business success books or plans. Meekness? Isn't that, the world would say, weakness? Isn't meekness weakness? See, meekness is perceived as the timid, the quiet, the unconfident, maybe the cowardice. The meek, oh, he's the guy who won't speak up at work when there's a problem. Meekness is the mom who gets run over in the conversation by all the other moms at the park. Meekness is that, that kid in the corner who's sitting by himself, doesn't have any friends, because he just doesn't have the confidence to interact. That's what the world perceives as meekness or gentleness. I want to encourage you and remind you to not let the culture define terms. Look to the Scriptures. Look to the examples that the Scriptures give of those men who were meek. And you'll see not weakness. You'll see great strength. Let's start with Moses. In Numbers 12.3, Moses is described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Was Moses meek? Sure, he stuttered. He did stutter. But was he a timid man? Do you remember the story when Moses stood up for his people and he killed the Egyptian who was oppressing the fellow Hebrew? Do you remember when Moses single-handedly fought off the shepherds 
who were barring Jethro's daughters from drinking from the well. He fought them off to provide Jethro's daughters drink. Single-handedly. How about Moses standing before Pharaoh time and time again, the most powerful man in the world, on behalf of God, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. I would not describe Moses as timid or cowardly. What about King David? King David said, the meek will eat and be satisfied. You think Israel's greatest king, the war hero, the man who confronted Goliath, would commend a coward? How about the ultimate example of meekness or gentleness? Jesus. See, Jesus self-described himself as meek. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart. Do you think the Lord who overturned tables in the temple, the one who publicly rebuked the Pharisees to their face, the one who was obedient to the point of death, who did not waver all the way to death, even death on a cross, do you think he was weak? No. See, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is great strength under control. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is not self-confidence, it's confidence in God. All of those men had confidence in God. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about Moses. It wasn't about David. It was about God. And even for Jesus, it wasn't about His will, it was about His Father's will. Meekness is not self-defense. It's defending God and defending others on behalf of the truth. Meekness is not self-pity. It is a compassion toward others. This is great strength under control. Meekness, you can write this down, is an attitude of utter selflessness. It's an attitude of utter, utter selflessness. Placing the will, the good, and the needs of others before yourself. Servant leadership. Jesus brings up the land aspect of the kingdom. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is important. Jesus is reaffirming the land promises given in the Old Testament. There is a literal future land in the kingdom that we belong to and that we are going to. This is an essential part of the kingdom program. Israel will be restored back to their land one day in the future. And Jesus will come down and reign from Jerusalem and over all the nations of the whole earth, which includes us, so Jew and Gentile. Both of us look forward to this inheritance, ruling and reigning with Christ in the land, in the earth as this beatitude describes. But it's only given to those who are meek. It's the criteria. Meekness. Following in the example of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon writes this, The meek are the lowly-minded. They're ready to give up their portion in the earth. Therefore, it comes right back to them. He has the best of this world prepared for those who think the least of it and the least of themselves. 
The world will say, you want to inherit the earth? Go take it for yourself. Jesus says, you want to inherit the earth? Give it up and give yourselves to others. Then God will exalt you. We looked at this passage a couple weeks ago, Philippians 2. What's the pattern? Suffering, humility, obedience to the point of death, but what follows? Then God exalted him and gave him the name above every name, and he reigns and rules over all, and Jesus gives us a similar pattern. Suffer and endure now. It's hard now. But if you suffer like Christ, if you're meek like Christ, if you follow in his footsteps, then that suffering doesn't lead to uh, unending suffering, but in fact leads you to eternal exaltation and glory. You will reign with Christ in the kingdom. Give up today. Give up the, the worldly attractiveness of these present possessions and live for the kingdom of the future. The path to glory and reign, Christian, is one of suffering and selflessness. Bring your power under control. Don't be quick to defend yourself or to defend your pride or to make yourself look good. Be meek, be gentle, put yourself underneath others and allow God to exalt you. Fall on your sword and God will make you a king and a queen in his future kingdom over the earth. His citizens will be meek as their king is meek. Fourthly and lastly for today, blessed are the righteousness craving. I couldn't shorten it. I didn't know how. Their righteousness craving. Look at this beatitude. Some commentators describe it as a small climax that's right in the middle of the beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now let's talk about hunger and thirst. We have this faint idea of what that means, what it means to be hungry and thirsty. Of course, we live in affluent America. We're hungry when we miss a meal. We're thirsty if we haven't had a sip of water in an hour. That's what we think hungry and thirsty means. Now, Jesus is talking to a different crowd here. He's talking to first century A.D. uh, people, the ones who know what it's really like to be hungry or thirsty. So when they hear Jesus say, blessed are the hungry and thirsty, they relate it to traveling multiple days without any food, and maybe rationing drips of water from their leather pouch. When they hear Jesus say, blessed are those who are hungry hungry and thirsty, they're thinking about desperation. They would insert this, blessed are those who are desperately hungry and desperately thirsty. They're malnourished, they're dehydrated. That's the kind of urge and craving Jesus is talking about, not the urge that you have for a double-double at In-N-Out. Although that would be good after four days with no food. This is a desperate craving, one that might result into a desperate search, a desperate exchange. I would give anything to have just a morsel, to have just a, a drip of that kind of water or that nourishment on my tongue. But what are they hungry for? What are they thirsty for? Look at the text, verse 6. Blessed are those who are desperately hungry and desperately thirsty for righteousness. 
Our bodies are designed to crave what we need. You know this. Thirst is an obvious example of this. When your body needs water, you crave a drink. General hunger is obvious as well. When your body needs nourishment, you will crave food. But even more specifically, when your body needs vitamin C, do you know what, you're, what it starts to crave? Fruits and vegetables or sources of vitamin C. Those start to sound good to you. Your body's telling you what you need. Or if you lack iron, your body will begin to crave red meat or other sources of iron. When you lack sugar, your body starts to crave something sweet. And some of you are thinking, well, I must lack a lot of sugar. (laughs) The blessed desperately crave righteousness because they know they need it more than anything else. We desperately need righteousness. You know why? Because we can't produce it in ourselves. We need it from elsewhere. We need God's righteousness. We need God, God's good because we are not good. We need God's justice because this world is unjust. And we can't fix it. Only God can. So we seek first His righteousness. This is a righteousness outside of ourselves. And this beatitude points, Jesus is telling them this and pointing to Himself. You need my righteousness. You need the righteousness that comes from heaven and was displayed and manifest through the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And if you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you know that the righteous requirement to enter His kingdom was not met by you, it was met by Jesus. Jesus, the righteous one, became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become righteous in Him. That's the only way we get in. That is the only admission ticket we have. Jesus covered my sin and granted me His righteousness. Yours is the kingdom. Enter. Not by your own works, but by His. And this is the great exchange of the Gospel If you believe in Him for salvation, He made a great exchange. He took your sinfulness upon His shoulders. He paid your debt. And He covered you with His righteousness. The righteousness that you desperately need. Remember, Jesus will say, the only way for us to enter the kingdom is if our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that should be, ding, 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 very obvious, you're not going to be able to do that on your own. You need an external righteousness. You need Jesus' righteousness. But, so those who are kingdom citizens have been covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have righteousness, but this beatitude tells us something interesting. You know what it tells us? We crave more of it. We, having been covered in Christ's righteousness, want and desperately seek More of it. What does that mean? What kind of righteousness are we looking for? You know, my seven-month-old son, when he got his first taste of real food, you know, 
food that he can kind of mush in his mouth. His eyes got all big. His mouth got big. And he just starts frantically waving his hands because he wants more, right? See, the blessed, they taste righteousness. They're saved by grace, covered in Christ's righteousness. They know him. They're justified. But they live their life frantically craving more. And here's the kind of righteousness we're looking for. It's coming in the future. It's able to be lived out today as we walk in good works and we follow Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But ultimate righteousness, ultimate justice, ultimate goodness will not come from this life. It won't come from the universities. It's not going to come from the systems. It's not going to come from politicians. It comes when the king establishes his kingdom. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're craving. That's what we desire. The righteousness of the kingdom when the king of righteousness will reign. And that is when we will be satisfied. Look at verse 6. For they shall be satisfied. The satisfaction is still coming in the future. This is the righteousness we're looking forward to. Isaiah chapter 9 describes the king's righteous reign. It says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is what the Christian craves. We've been granted his righteous life, so we've had a taste And we crave more. We long and we desperately seek for His kingdom to come. And for all wrongs to be made right. And for the righteous King to rule and reign over all. If you're suffering today, if you're going through trials, difficult things, you are. And it is hard. And the Lord recognizes that. But He he hangs this carrot in front of you and says, look forward to the kingdom. Seek His righteousness. Seek His kingdom. Look forward. Here's the hope. Here is your faith. Here is the joy set before you. Continue to endure in this life. Your blessing is to come. You can live blessed. You can truly be happy and have joy and find comfort knowing that the King will come and make all wrongs right. So we look forward to that day. We seek it and we crave it all our lives until it is realized. Jesus said, seek first His kingdom. And His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Comfort in the midst of anxiety. So the blessed are spiritual beggars. They mourn over their sin. They deny themselves and they crave and they long for the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. They made it into the kingdom by the righteousness of Jesus and they look forward to the establishment of His kingdom. His righteous kingdom in the future. So let me ask you this. How much of your thoughts... 
How much of your attitudes and your actions are spent on these things? Do these four beatitudes describe your life? Describe your heart, your, your heart's desire, your cravings? Or do you need to seek these things more? Dwell on these things more? Rid yourself of worldly influences or worldly ideas about what true happiness comes from? Seek it in the Scriptures. Seek it from the Lord Jesus. These Beatitudes set forth good reminders of who we are as Christians and and what we ought to pursue, what we ought to dwell on. But these Beatitudes also instruct you if you're not a Christian. These Beatitudes have taught you if you're not yet a kingdom citizen. And here's what they've taught you. That you have nothing to offer God in yourself. You are spiritually bankrupt. It's taught you that sin and death are serious matters, matters that should cause you to mourn. And the kingdom is not taken by a self-righteous, success-driven attitude. It is received in meekness and great selflessness and humility. And the righteousness that you need is not in you. It's outside of you. These Beatitudes point you to Jesus Christ and your desperate need for Him. So if you're not truly a citizen of the kingdom, if if these four Beatitudes are planets away from your life, non-existent, maybe you should consider, do I truly know the King? Am I following Him? Have I mourned my sin and have I repented from it and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ? If you haven't, do so today. Do so today. Respond to the good news of the gospel. Jesus' righteous life, death, resurrection, and ascension on your behalf. Trust in Him and Him completely to be covered in His righteousness and to be blessed, truly blessed like this describes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before You with great humility, recognizing there's nothing we can offer. There's no good that we can do apart from You. And that everything good in our life is a gift from You, God, and every good that is produced from our life is is by Your power and Your strength and, and what You've done in our life. God, I pray that You'd make us a humble people, a meek people, a hungry and a thirsty people for righteousness, a people that takes sin and death seriously and mourns over it. So that, God, we would truly be blessed, we would be thriving, we would be happy, and seek the fulfillment. Seek the whole manifestation of Your kingdom that is to come in the future. In Jesus' name, Amen.